I think these type of conversations get spurred on when I have conversations with people who say things, and I don't know if they know what they're saying. Like, when I hear someone say, what's wrong with a look? What's wrong with a second look? And unfortunately, I think there are many of you in seats today that would be willing to stand on a rooftop and say, fear the second look. Because you know where it's taken you, you know where you've lived, you know the struggle you've walked with, you know the hurt that has come from it. There would be some of you in that that scene in The Lord of the Rings when Gandalf's fighting the fire monster and it whips up and it grabs him and he's holding on to the cliff, but, but like holding on and the rest of the fellowship turns back to look at him. And in the original, uh, in, the, in, the, in the book, he looks at them and says, fly, you fools. In the original theatrical version of The Lord of the Rings, he actually says, run, fly, in the Old English is flee. And so where the fellowship had turned to look back and see what was happening to Gandalf, Gandalf was saying, run! And I think that's where we're headed this morning. I think community and those of us that are in the Christian community and those of us that are in reach groups together, those of us that serve together, your first and foremost responsibility for the body of Christ is not to just do nice things for each other. We actually throw ourselves in front of those that would be running towards the things that will kill them. Do you know that? Do you know that what's, what we have been invited into is to throw ourselves in front of those that would call themselves believers that are headed for destruction? Small group communities really are the number of bodies you have to step over to get to your death. Have you ever thought about that? It's intense. Because it is a fight against lust. If you believe that victory over lust is going to come because you just lay down and go, All right, Lord, make it happen. Some of you have tried that. You're like, well, he didn't take it away from me, so I guess he's okay with it. All right? That's what we say. We justify any of these things. And the danger of this is we do not fight in the way the scripture tells us we must fight against lust. If you've ever thought that it's just looking, you've bought into the lie of the culture, Hook, line, and sinker. And this morning, I hope that you will understand that there is a reason that Jesus deals with so strongly where we look. If Jesus says that it will kill us, do we believe him? Really, that's what it boils down to. Do you believe that if Jesus says something will kill you, do you believe that? Because he tells us there are things that will destroy us. And I think what sin tells you is Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Right? That's what sin does. That's what the voice does. That's what the the flesh does. It justifies anything and everything that it can to get to those sinful desires. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, 
Even your good eye causes you to lust. Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. For those of you doubting that a little lust never hurt anyone, I hope you heed Jesus' words this morning. Jesus said, choose to lose body parts than to allow lust to reign in your life. Please do not walk out of here thinking lust is no big deal. A second look doesn't really matter. It's just a screen. It matters. Jesus also talks about where the battle really rages, and he's actually talking to the most religious people of the day when he mentions this in Mark chapter 7. He says this in verse 20, is, It is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. Jesus doesn't blame our outer actions on our surrounding circumstances. While they play a role, I believe, yes, but he does not give the heart of our outer actions to those things surrounding us. He says it comes from within. I think we wish that we could blame our sinful desires on the things around us. That way we could run away. This is why we build Christian communities that just live away from the world. This is why we have the monasteries up on the mountains so everyone can be separate from the world, believing that somehow the world is the reason I sin. And let me tell you this, guys. You can stream 150 Christian channels into your house, and a man can still be unfaithful to his wife. I wish that it was just about running away. But if Jesus is right, then it comes from here. This. This is where all of the outer actions begin. If you combine a broken heart with a sex and power-crazed society, the result is millions of people struggling alone with the consequences of a second look. This morning, I hope we understand our working definition of lust um, the King James Version of the Bible, the word lust has traditionally been tied to sexual desires, uh, as in the way Jesus mentioned it. Um, Paul also connects it to broken sexual desires. You and I have broken sexual desires. Whether you're heterosexual, homosexual, wherever you are on the gay straight concept uh, discussion, we have broken sexual desires. That is what the scripture teaches us. And so what we need to be able to do is go, is it because I have a desire it's good for me or is this desire that I have not good for me and God is actually wanting to replace these desires with himself? These are the questions the Christ follower asks. This is where we live. We go, just because I have the desire doesn't mean it's good for me. We run to our heavenly father and we say, what do you have to say? about these desires. 
Paul actually talking to the Romans. He says that there are those people who will know God, but they will refuse to thank him or worship them, worship him. And then what he says is a result of refusing to thank God or refusing to worship God is that minds go dark. And here's the trouble, folks. We can't trust dark minds especially when they try and tell us about God. Because a dark mind, according to Paul, comes up with foolish descriptions of God. So the first question I think we have to wrestle with is, am I listening to people with dark minds, people who refuse to thank him or worship him? We cannot trust descriptions of God coming from people who do not thank him, nor do they worship him. And he says a result of trusting their foolish thoughts about God. And verse 24 of Romans 1 is this. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. That word for lust or strong desire, as we've been talking about, Jesus also mentions it when he comes to materialism. Jesus uses the same word as far as the types of soil. You remember the story with the farmer throwing out the seed, and he's telling, he's throwing the seed on the different roads, and then he explains this parable to the disciples, and he says there's some roads that are ready to receive the seed, which is the word of God, and he goes through the description of the soils. Well, then he describes the thorny soil. In verse 18 of Mark 4, it says, the seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of This life, the lure of wealth and the desire for other things, so no fruit is produced. The desire for other things. In in his mentoring letter to his uh, disciple, Paul warns Timothy of lusting after money in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil he doesn't say money is the root he says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows Another way you may have heard this word is coveting. That's a big Christian word, the coveting. In in the, the big ten that the Lord gives the people of Israel, the tenth commandment, The one thing, the the, the, the 10th commandment and the commandments that God wants all people in all times and all places to understand that they cannot keep up and, and Jesus kept them fully. This one, the 10th commandment, Exodus 20, you must not covet your neighbor's house, have a strong desire for. You guys watch Fixer Upper? Just saying. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What we look at and what we long for and what we desire matters because it comes out in the way we live. And I believe in one of the greatest movies of all time, there is a 12-second clip that plays over and over in my head when it comes to lust. 
That's it. 12 seconds changes your life, right? Bet you've never seen one of these before. I want that. That's how it starts, right? First look, and we're hooked. The heart begins to say, I want that. And then the mind begins to devise ways to put a hand on it. Because the scripture uses the phrasing of strong desire or craving, a strong, sinful desire, the working definition this morning that I hope that we will understand when we say the words lust is that it is an inward sin which leads to a leading away from God. It's a heart want that takes us farther from our Father. That's what lust is. It's this desire in us that is to go after something that will lead us away from our relationship with our Father. And so, yes, it was used when it comes to sexual, broken sexual desires. When it was used, it's used with materialism. It's used with money. It's used with anything that you would say, I want that. God, don't really care, but I want that. And I can't live without that. If I don't have that, I won't live. Sounds like a Christ follower confession, right? But we say it of the things of this world. That is Lust, an inward heart want that will lead us away from our Father. It doesn't take much to look at this world and know that we are addicted specifically to sex and power. Websites, teachers, coaches, and clergy arrested for incidents that they were meant to protect children from. Sexting becoming commonplace. You don't have to look far to realize we live in a lust crazed culture. Headline after headline, it's either an accusation, a confession, or a denial. This is the day we live in. We are in a culture that lives addicted to our desires, and our desires rule, and they take us all sorts of places. Money, power, and sex, artists, movies, Musicians, I don't have to name any, and you can already think of those who begin to paint this type of a picture. Is it life imitating art, or is it art imitating life? It doesn't really matter. The picture that we're painting is a very selfish one. It's where we're at. Not just as a culture, but also in the church. So please don't do this. It's them. That's us. <laughs> My goodness. Why are we as the church, powered by the Holy Spirit, so ineffective in our country? I'll tell you why. It's because lust is driving those who make up the body of Christ. We are still driven by our sinful desires and submitting to the Holy Spirit and saying, God, please lead every part of my life. It's not even on our radar. But this is why Jesus came, because he knew we would not love God perfectly, nor would we desire him. Jesus made a way, and he paints a picture for us that is greater and grander than anything this world can offer us. The Bible gives us insight when it comes to how lust works and who will be controlled by lust. 
Lust will be the driving force for those who do not know God. That's what Galatians or Ephesians chapter 4 says in verse 17. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly. That's a key word. They anticipate They look forward to practicing every kind of impurity. Those who do not know God will be controlled by their sinful desires. You and I once lived that way. You and I share that same story. And even though you've been following Jesus for 50 years, You share this story. We used to live controlled by our sinful desires. And if you're one who stands in here and says, I was never, then you're calling God a liar. That's what you're doing. But those who are controlled by the sinful desires are those who do not know God. That's what Ephesians tells us. Human beings have a thirst, a thirst beyond what is for physical thirsts, where we are not satisfied. We believe that product A will satisfy this deep longing we have somehow. Well, when product A does not satisfy, we turn to product B. And if product B does not satisfy, we turn to product C. Or then we go back to product A thinking maybe this time, or then we'll go to product B. And the truth is the sinful desire is to try and find life apart from God. It was the fall in the garden. When Adam and Eve made decisions, their sinful desire was, I want to be God. I don't want to be with God. I want to be God. And so our sinful desires are rooted in this chasing of this satisfaction that I might find apart from God. And guys, this is where it gets really difficult because the consequences are tied to the choices They cannot be changed. And if God says that life is impossible without him, he means it. But the sinful desire will say, maybe I can do it differently, and then I'll have life. That's the sinful desire at work in the heart of the human being. Um, In one of those recreated rescue shows, uh, I can't remember which adventurer it was, but he and a friend were trying to recreate a story where they read about two guys trying to drive across this desert and their Jeep broke down. And in this story, as the Jeep broke down, the men began to get thirsty. And so they they, they dug themselves a little trench underneath the Jeep and they laid underneath the Jeep to get out of the sun. See, they had food. That wasn't what they were concerned about. But if they ate any of that food because they had no water... They were concerned that their thirst would begin to grow even more than it already has. And in the desert, when people die, it's not of starvation, it's dehydration. And apparently, dehydration is one of the worst human sufferings we can walk through, which is why clean water projects all over the world are really important. 
But as these men walk through the phases of thirst, they walk through, um, and, and I want to make sure I'm getting these words right, but they walk through what's called eudipsia, which is an ordinary thirst, okay? Uh, they pass from this ordinary thirst where the body would just go, I need some water, I need some Gatorade, whatever. Then they move to what is called hyperdipsia, this, this intensity of my thirst level has gone up, and I'm actually starting to thirst for things that probably aren't good for me. And then when that craving isn't met, they move into what is called polydipsia. And this is this excessive thirst, willing to drink urine or blood. This is this over thirst that you cannot meet. And so what these men ended up doing because their thirst levels had gone up was they began to drink the water from the radiator. They were willing to drink poison because they were so thirsty. Guys, we do this in everyday life. It's what the sinful desire does. The sinful desire says, God, you can't meet that thirst, but I know what can. And we chase after money, sex, power, influence, control, all to quench a deep, lasting thirst that only the presence of God can meet. This is what I believe the scriptures teach us, that life without him is impossible. And he made it possible for us to be with him through the work of Christ on the cross. Whether we are individuals or the entire nation of Israel in the scriptures, when the people are led by their sinful desires, the result is always life-taking, never life-giving. In James chapter 1, he says it this way, Remember, when you are being tempted, hear me this morning. When you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. I hear this all the time. I hear Christ followers say, God is tempting me. He is not. The scriptures teach us that God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Verse 14, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Consequences are tied to actions. That's what the scripture teaches the sinful human heart will say, I can change the consequences. It'll be different with me this time. It's to say, Jesus, you don't know what you're speaking of. The consequences and results of chasing our sinful desires is life-taking. And I don't think that those sinful desires want you to know the end game. They want you to just see what is in front of you immediately rather than the long-term consequences that could happen. Sin never wants you to know the end game. Sin never wants you to know the destruction, never wants you to know the people that this will slaughter, never wants you to know that you'll struggle alone or that you'll be by yourself in this prison that you have made. Sin only wants you to see what feels good now. And the scripture is saying, look, it matters where you look, because it could set you up for a life, a life of entrapment. Um, whenever I, I try and help somebody understand how 
Lust Works. I use, I use this cartoon. Uh, it's the old cartoon wolf. You guys remember him? Um, it's when he would see something and the eyes pop out, the mouth drops open, the tongue rolls out. It's all real funny and everything. But the truth is, the way it all works is when the heart sees what it sees, the brain starts thinking, how do I get that thing? That's the one that starts saying, well, if I'm here, here, and here, I'll see that thing. If I go to the water cooler at the same time every day, I'll see her or him. If I do this and I'm home, nobody else is home, and here we are, and the brain starts to think about how to put the hand on whatever it is they're chasing. You see, the outer action isn't, isn't like the first thing. It starts here. And then it grows with a second look. This is why the, the second look is so dangerous. It's why we fight and say the second look can't happen. The first looks will. They're there. And if you're a Christ follower saying you can live free of the first looks, you got your mind, man. We live in a culture where it's everywhere. But it's the second look that you and I have a choice and now, according to Scripture, we have a new power helping us avoid the second look. Listen to verses 14 and 15, again of James 1. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us. Do you know what the word entice means? It means to cause a change of belief so as to correspond more with the beliefs of the person or factor causing the change. What that means is to entice is I'm actually going, okay, God is best. But then I look at this website and I go, oh, wait, that website's telling me it's best. I think I agree with that website. That website is best now. That's what enticement does. It attempts to help you see that it is better than what you might think is better. This is the role of our sinful desires. Our sinful desires aim to take us away from our Father. Um, I, I love when we went hiking a couple weeks ago. Uh, I love watching birds like soar over the mountains. Like it's just so cool to watch them do this. And I remember looking at it going, man, that's a cool bird. And I was like, oh, that's a vulture. But it's still beautiful to watch like spinning around, right, in the air, like just floating. Like it's amazing. But then as you wrestle with what a vulture does, is the vulture's not really checking out the landscape. Vulture's not impressed by the mountains. The vulture's not impressed by the fall colors that we are. The vulture's not impressed by the green grasses or the, the views. The vulture sees the dead rabbit under the bush. The vulture sees what it seeks. The same with human desires. What we seek, we will see. And our sinful desires aim to let us in and see things that will lead us from our Father. God has given us ways to know when lust is in the driver's seat. Galatians 5.19. When you follow, here's, here it is, he just lays it out. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the results 
of living controlled by the sinful desires. This is not Paul saying you've got to avoid those things to be saved. He's saying that those who are saved will not chase these things. Those who know the living God will not run to these things and make them their practice. They will not give themselves to these desires as if to get better at them. They will not anticipate and look forward to engaging in these things because our Heavenly Father has shown us the kindness and the goodness and the greatness of Himself in the cross of Christ. This is not Paul saying you can earn your salvation. He is saying that those who are his will not live lives marked by these things. God has also given us ways to know when his spirit is in the driver's seat. Galatians 5, he just continues, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Are you struggling against sin? Or are you a slave to it? Are you fighting against it or is it your master? Are you wrestling against the feelings in the flesh or are you giving yourself over to them? These are the questions that Christ's followers look and go, God, you got to help me see. Because if I don't see freedom in anything around me, I'm going to have to trust that you alone are freedom and that I can't do this on my own. By faith in Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection, there is a new power. And this comes along with the good news declaration. It is that Jesus, living a sinless life, died a sinner's death. And with his resurrection, conquered sin and death, meaning that I have been saved from the power of sin. When I can't feel like I can shake free, it's not me shaking myself free. It's me trusting that Christ has bought freedom for me, but also the penalty of my sin. So when I'm walking with my past and going, man, the penalty of my sin, I deserve to be beaten down and hurt. And I I just have been so terrible. Uh, Jesus set me free from the power and the penalty of sin. It doesn't mean there aren't earthly consequences. It just means that my favor with God, my standing with God is not based on my past, my present, or my future performances. It's based on Jesus's performance. And that's where I, that's the only thing I have hope in, then that's enough. That's it. That's all we have. It's why Jesus will be central to everything we do here at Highland. Because, folks, we don't have a leg to stand on, to boast about. But Jesus does. That is why full devotion to him matters more than anything else. It's because he has done the work to bring us safely home to God. Like everything else, lust is a worship issue. Listen to the way um, in, in 2 Timothy, it's worded for us. It's not just about saying, don't lust. 
our efforts have actually changed. In 2 Timothy 2.22, if you ever have a hard time, if you're wrestling with lust, just remember 2.2.2.2. That's all you have to do. It's great. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. This is for you and me as Christ followers to recognize there are going to be things in this life that stimulate the lust you once took part in. You got to know that. And the fact that if you're going to ignore that, that that's not going to happen, you're setting yourself up for failure. He's saying, look, run from those things. You got a new weapon. You got new ways. You got new things that you get to chase. So it's not just a removal of this lust. It's actually a replacement. And he says, instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness and love, which are always on opposite ends from lust. Just so you know, faithfulness and love are tied together, but they are opposite the spectrum of lust. Faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. I want you to know that doesn't mean call on the Lord with a bunch of goody two-shoes. That's not what it means. Call on the Lord with others with a pure heart means call on the Lord with others who have an undivided spirit, an undivided heart, a heart that says, we want to know him. We ain't perfect. We're not getting it right all the time. I say the wrong thing. I do the wrong thing. I confess that. I make that known. It's healing in my life. It's reconciliation in my life. But I have got to see him with everything I've got. Those are the types of people you're supposed to walk with. That's what it means. Seek him. Call on him with those who call on him with a pure heart, undivided. I'm no longer wavering between the world and him. Like everything else, lust is a worship issue. The core of our sinful belief is that whatever we're lusting after, we can't do without. And so if you worshiped your way into lust, you have to worship your way out. Something greater and grander replaces that once thought so great lust. And that is the very presence of God himself. Freedom comes as a greater desire or affection replaces that old sinful desire. It's not just about a removal. It's about a replacement. Now, I I don't know for you, when we look at the scripture, it's not like God just says, Hey, change change the way you think about me right now. Change the way you think about me right now. He actually reveals himself. And he pulls the veil back and he says, this is who I am. Thankfully, what he says to us is look at me. Just look. Look at me. That's what he says. And it's amazing that over that time of a people who continually go back to the Lord, he changes the way we see him. See, you and I, we all have a narrative of what we think about God and where that came from and our father figures and our, and our parent figures and the, the churches we grew up in. We all have narratives that we've got to deal with when it comes to God. And God's saying, you want to deal with those? Just look at me. Just look at me. Look here. Stop looking around. But see, these people did this. I'm not those people. I'm your heavenly father. I made you. I know you better than you know yourself. And I gave my very life so that you could know me. This is your heavenly father. Look here. And it's strange because the more we look there, 
He begins to change our desires for the things of this world. We sang it, man. We're prone to wander. Jesus came for those who wandered in the wrong direction. We have to be a people who are able to sit and say, I struggle with those sinful desires still daily. If you're walking around on, on like this, I'm holier than everybody else, you're setting yourself up for failure. But it's when we confess one to another, man, I'm really struggling. I have felt the pull of pornography. I have felt the pull of power. I have felt the pull of lust. I have felt the pull of, 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 uh, of anything and everything. I, don't, I can't name them all because the, the sinful desires are just there and they run after things, that, but it doesn't make those desires good. We go to our Father and say, Father, what do you think about these things? How do we approach the Father? How do we approach God? We see him in scripture. And several years ago, I was reading in a book that just, it's tight, you know, when I don't desire God. Like, I'm not sure if anyone would admit it, but there are times we just don't desire him. There are times. I've wrestled with it. I've walked with it. And if you can't say that, well, good. Maybe you should write a book. I don't know. When I don't desire God. And he just points to the Psalms over and over and over. And he says, you approach the scripture asking God, would you let me see you? And it was, it was a simple acronym. It was I-O-U-S. And if you're a note taker, you can write these down. It's not R-O-U-S's from Princess Bride. It's I-O-U-S. And, and what, he, what he really just writes about are, is the psalmist's prayer. The I being inclined my heart. He's like, look, God, you got to wake my heart up, man. Because I'm really reclined to you right now. Incline my heart to you. And this is how we approach the scripture. See, when we approach the scripture like Harry Potter or Chronicles of Narnia or any of these other books that we may or may not have, I mean, we're just setting ourselves up to either not see anything or see the wrong thing. It's the way scripture is. And so the way we approach God's word is different. I just say, God, incline my heart to see you. Like, sit me up so that I can see you. Give me a desire to see you. The O would be open my eyes to the wonders of who you are. See, that's why we're attracted to the things of this world is we think they're wonderful. So what needs to happen is a heart replacement. God, open my eyes to how wonderful you are. The you is one of my favorite prayers because it's where I wrestle with it's unite my heart to fear your name. A divided heart is, the, is one of the things that will keep us from seeing him clearly. And if you wrestle with a divided heart, beg God to unite your heart to fear his name. And then the last I-O-U-S, satisfy me which is why we run after every lust we see. We believe that whatever we're chasing is going to satisfy us. And we find over and over and over that it does not. The psalmist gives us the way in its worship. God, incline my heart, open my eyes, unite my heart to fear your name, satisfy me with your unending love. Because it's what I'm looking for. And as the band comes and we close this morning, um, the Lord is one who knows we are forgetful people, and I want you to know that. He knew what he was getting into. He made a choice to love us still, okay? 
uh, with the people of Israel. He gave them ways to remember his commands and how easily they can drift. Um, in Numbers chapter 15, when, when the Lord is laying out the plan for the people of Israel, uh, the Lord says this to Moses. Give the following instructions to the people of Israel throughout the generations to come. You must make tassels for the hems of your clothing and attach them with a blue cord. When you see the tassels, you will remember and obey all the commands of the Lord instead of following your own desires and defiling yourselves as you are prone to do. Please don't tell me that the Lord doesn't know what you're dealing with. He does, and he knows you're prone to it. But he still says, come. He still says, come. For us, the tassels will, remember, will help you remember that you must obey all my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that I might be your God. I am the Lord your God. Just like Israel, you and I have been given great reminders that we are prone to wander. And though we weren't rescued out of Egypt, our flight was made possible out of sin. He did this through Jesus. Jesus is our reminder that God, while we were still slaves to sin, following our sinful desires, sent Jesus at just the right time, not only to save us from the power of sin, but from the penalty of sin. And the Apostle Paul and Peter and John, all of them write about this. In fact, in 1 John, John opens his letter with this call. And it's the same call I want to invite you to this morning as you struggle with your lusts. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. Breaking free from the power of lust is not found in a new list. It is found in a new friendship. A friendship made possible with God through Christ. We are constantly a people who sit before reminders that our lives are not our own. And that God has made us new, no longer Slaves to sin. Communion this morning, we will have opportunities around the room to go and take this bread, dip it in the juice, and then take it in. And what we're saying is that we have trusted Christ. We believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he's going to do and that he has paid my price. He has bought me back from death. So I am no longer mine, but I am his. I am no longer a slave to sin, but I am his. And my life will be lived by the power of his spirit, even though I struggle. This is our reminder when we go to the corner of the rooms, not of our strength, but of his. And today we celebrate baptism with several who have said, I want to make this declaration 
And in Romans chapter 6, baptism is not only this declaration, but for the body of Christ, it is a reminder. We know that our sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and we will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. This morning, if you are one who has been struggling alone in the battle against lust, baptism is a declaration, not, that, not just of what God has done inside, but it's also a declaration that says, I'm taking my place in the body of Christ. I belong to a people and they belong to me. Lust is not something dealt with alone. We were not meant to be alone. And so this morning, there are a couple of postures you can take. You can hit your knees. You can confess. You can use this space. There'll be some, some of our small group leaders will be standing over there. You can go and ask for prayer. But maybe some of you just need to say, I believe that message and I, I, need to, I want to be baptized. I get it. So there are clothes over here. If you're like, I want to be baptized, I didn't sign up for it, but I absolutely believe everything about Jesus. And I, I don't know everything, but I believe that. I want to be baptized. The Bible says, believe and be baptized. So today could be yours. I know you didn't get to call everybody that you wanted to to be here for it, but it doesn't matter. When the Holy Spirit moves and convicts and transforms, you get in the water and you say, I'm his. There's social media. People will take pictures, I'm sure, whatever. But the beautiful invitation of Scripture is that you can't on your own, but Christ can. We are now dead to sin, alive to Christ, living for the glory of God. We don't live to glorify those little things, those sinful desires. We live to glorify God, the one who saved us, the one who gave his life for us. And so at, when you're ready, you can go to the corners of the room. But I said, like I said, I'm not kidding. You can go over there, grab some clothes. They're, they're clean. You can, if you need to change, we'll have towels for you. But we will be celebrating baptism with several families this morning. A declaration of dead to sin, alive to Christ, taking my place in the body. I'm not meant to do this alone. Father, we love you. And I ask that as we, we prepare for these remembrances, these symbols, and these, these powerful displays of your love for us and our new place in Christ, would you mark us by these things? Mark us by your presence that we might not be the same. It's in your name we pray.